You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcasts. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows TRIO programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former TRIO staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with TRIO. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Amelia, for that wonderful introduction. Hello, listener, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In today's episode, we have Elias Quinones, who is a Trio alum of the Upward Bound program at Colorado State University. Elias is on the podcast to talk about his educational journey, where he gets his inspirations from, and his current career experience. So coming up in just a bit, Elias Quinones. A huge thanks to our sponsors, Angelica Vialpando, Rosario O'Reilly, Dr. Ryan Barone, Dr. Jamie Motley, Jaded Electronics, Angelica Valdez, TrioJobList.com, Nosotros Education Center and Student Access. Thank you all so much for your continued support of this podcast. You too can be a sponsor of the podcast. Head on over to Patreon and search for Let's Talk Trio. Choose one of four patron levels. You can support this podcast for as little as a dollar a month. A dollar a month goes a long way in supporting this podcast. If you own a business and would like to advertise with us, email us at letstalktrio at gmail.com. That email again is L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. If you would like to nominate a participant, staff, or alumni to be on the podcast, send us an email at letstalktrio at gmail.com. That email again is L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. Again, a great episode featuring Elias Quinones, who is a alumni of the Trio Upward Bound program at Colorado State University and is currently a CSU professional. This was such a fun episode to make. Uh, first, because we did this episode live back in February. Uh, we had great engagement uh, and people listening in. Uh, so we are just now getting around to publishing this episode for the podcast. So uh, once again, uh, this is a great Trio story and I hope you enjoy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Five, four, three, two, one. 
Hi, Trio Nation, and welcome to a very special episode of Let's Talk Trio. We are broadcasting live from the Nutrient Building at Colorado State University. My guest on this podcast is a Trio alum of the Upward Bound program at Colorado State University and graduated from the University of Northern Colorado holding a bachelor's and master's degree. He is currently a PhD candidate at Colorado State University. Our, our guest served as an admission counselor for the University of Northern Colorado, college counselor for Colorado Department of Higher Education, and currently serves as the manager of student life for agricultural science within Colorado State Universities. His hobbies include uh, he's being a novice painter, fishing, reading, and inspiring folks around him. It is an honor to welcome Elias Cañones to the Lost Talk Trio podcast. Elias, welcome to the podcast. Mr. Rivas, thank you for having me, and I'm excited to be here and excited to represent the trio. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. This is our first one-on-one interview live broadcast on Podbean, uh, so I want to say uh, it's an honor to be interviewing you. It's a fantastic. Well, I'm not going to lie. I've been waiting a long time to try to get out of here. Uh, uh, excited about the opportunity it, it has been a long time i think we've been um kind of uh, once in a while touching base seeing if we can get something to work uh and then we finally agreed on a date and time uh and you initiated on the air and so thank you so much for being here tonight uh for the audience elias and i are colleagues here at colorado state university we are in the middle of the semester at csu uh how are things on your end elias no uh 2023 20, is off to just a wonderful start and uh we just got some great momentum going in regards to um, the advocating of what we do and in regards to higher ed for underrepresented students. And um, I'm on cloud nine at the moment and really, and that's not always the case for those of us that are in higher ed and we're, we're in the front line, so to say. But uh, right now, it's uh, just some wonderful things to, to be thankful for. Awesome. Some of the feedback I get from students around campus is that this semester has started off with a snowstorm right in the middle of everything. Uh, has that snowstorm thrown you off any any at all? You know, not not really. And uh, it was when it happened, you know, there was a, it was a time where it was the start of the semester. We didn't know what to expect. And of course, uh, this is semester two of our, our new building. Uh, this is semester two of really students coming back and uh, after the impact of COVID. So there was just a bit of unknown all, all over. And uh, um, we're thankful that, uh, you know, some of us were thankful that we got the extra days to be at home and kind of recover and re- right. and just give us a little bit more time to prepare. Uh, prepare. But um, at this point, we are, uh, and I feel that even our students are just uh, full blast and, and going, and uh, that's, in, that's exciting. Uh, absolutely. On the topic of being prepared, how do you prepare yourself for each semester? Ooh, that's tough. Uh, uh, at, you know, while in my role as manager of student life, um, you know, there's some things that we, we, we do pretty consistently. We, we know that uh, financial aid, you know, opens up uh, typically October 1st, and, and it, we have till March 1st. So we start thinking about, you know, the programming, and we try to, uh, like right now, we're really trying to encourage those last-minute students to get yeah. that FAFSA in and right. CSU scholarships in and start preparing for next year. But uh, so we have these systemic uh, programming, but we never know really, uh, like, where our students are at and you know mm-hmm. and I try to leave some space uh, for uh, that kind of development and try to gauge it on on basing where our students are at at the moment right on uh, what is your favorite part of the semester 
Ooh, wow. Uh, that is an awesome... Uh, <laughs> you know the holidays get pretty pretty fun. Once it starts getting to the, the fall, uh, um, students are, are getting kind of excited and ready for those breaks. So I, uh, I really look forward to that. And then, of course, uh, prior to the summer starting, you know, one of the things is... And it's for all of us. I, I, I try to, when I speak, uh, you know, because I was a student and, and I, I work with students and... Right. Um, I, I I sense and try to gauge where they're at, you know, and mm-hmm. our students are going in all in, you know, and they're putting in a lot of work and um, and uh, they're exhausted oftentimes, you know, after yeah. some of the big finals. And so seeing where they see the light at the end of the tunnel and the breaks, seeing them get excited as well as us, um, I think uh, that can be fun. That's awesome. Uh, talk to us about your position that you alluded to earlier at CSU. What is this role and what do you do? Sure. So, manager of student life and diversity. Um, uh, it is uh, advocating for um, you know all students, of course, but really uh, wanting to give space and promote uh, uh, promote diversity in ag for our students. And um, we just see a great need uh, from our industry. We um, uh, where they're constantly asking for you know diverse thought and diverse views from from students and. And we know that there's always a, a, a gap in regards to enrollment of um, ethnically diverse students, and, and um, College of Ag is no different. So we're trying to decrease that gap and really want to, uh, um, you know, create not only access, but access and support for students when they're here. Absolutely. Um, and we know that, uh, you know, uh, I feel diverse uh, communities have always had a rich, um, you know, history with mm-hmm. agriculture. Yeah. So for me, it's it's clear as day that uh, that story needs to be, uh, you know, upheld and needs to be honored and respected. And I think having that opportunity to um, to advocate in both of these spaces, um, you know, agriculture as well as um, higher education for underrepresented students, as well as all, all students and understanding, you know, uh, what are things that are working for retention and completion. I think it's just uh, it's a privilege and one that I uh, I'm grateful for every day. Wonderful. Uh, how long have you been on this at this role? Sure, I think I'm going on a little over four years um, now, if not close to four years, working with uh, CSU. Now I have been on campus since January 10th at, at, on CSU. Wow! But from that time to 2018, uh, I was an affiliate, so I was working with the Colorado Department of Higher Ed and uh, with a program through Colorado Gear Up that was called Colorado Challenge, mm-hmm. and that um, I was assigned here to be to work with CSU students. So the students that I had the opportunity to uh, provide what we would call holistic advising were uh-huh. Daniels Fund, uh, Denver Scholarship Foundation, Alliance students, um, asset students we were, we were serving, and um, several other first-gen uh, programs that uh, we were providing supplemental support uh, and it was under the Community for Excellence, which, again, is a, a wonderful, wonderful program here at CSU, as you well know. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, and you, you really learn from our students. You learn um, what's working. You, 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 you get a great um, picture of systems that aren't working. Mm-hmm. And, um, boy, uh, what better way to, to be a part of uh, efforts of progress and of success than to hear directly firsthand from from these students' experiences. That's wonderful. Um, 
outside of CSU, talk to us about some of the intersecting identities that are salient to you. Sure. Uh, you mentioned earlier that fishing is part of something that you love doing, painting. Yeah, talk to us about that. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the ide- identities that I, that I hold strong. So I, 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 can, I am a Mexican-American. I was born in, in Texas. So there's the often terms of Tejano and Chicano and right. all of uh, those identities. So for those that, are, that don't see us, you know, uh, I... Um, I'm of a family of 12, of a, oh, wow. um, and I was the youngest of seven, and then my father uh, remarried, and we had a blended family, so I had wow. stepbrothers and half-brothers, but, uh, so we were a big family, uh-huh. and uh, originally from West Texas, so I hold those identities um, because they gave me a lot, and, uh, and uh, they made me better, for sure, and uh, then we moved to Greeley, and um, there I... You know, we was uh, involved in our in our faith and mm-hmm. working everywhere. So, uh-huh. and I was an, I'm considered a, a non traditional. So I was a I was a student that didn't return back to college for long periods of time after you know poor attempts or um, just after uh, I think a long journey. Mm-hmm. It took a while for me to get back into to college and, and figure this life out. And by then, I'm, I I am married. I've gone married for uh, 20 years on May 31st. Congratulations. First, thank you. My wife's name is uh, Ana Laura, and she is a teacher at Harris Elementary. Uh, she's a kinder teacher, and uh, I, I take great pride uh, in seeing her uh, also in education and advocating for, um, for, for students this school is a bilingual school mm-hmm. and so and in addition to that I'm, I'm a, a father a father and I take that identity you know um, it's one of my greatest joys to be honest I, you know I take great joys in my degrees and and my faith and all of the things that I've been a, a part of but uh, being a father and a husband all that but being a father is by far uh, probably the most rewarding mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and stressful at times <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my son started school here at CSU last fall and oh, really? graphic design and man you know as parents we uh, we feel that a lot of what we've done the sacrifices that we've made you know and one it's honoring our family who sacrificed even more and went mm-hmm. through so much more mm-hmm. but here we went through quite a bit as well and and uh, it was all for the purpose of making life easier for our children and the right. legacy that we leave behind and right. um, so seeing that come to fruition and seeing my son now, Christian Quinones, who's 19 and, wow. you know, starting college and us doing all the things that we thought we were right, you know, thought we were right, uh-huh. paid off. He's got uh-huh. a completely different perspective than uh, what me or, or his mom have and, wow. and had. And it's just a completely different experience. That's amazing. So. Uh, and I totally relate with you uh, being a father myself and, and seeing uh, kiddos grow up. Uh, you really have that influence, right, about how you're hoping that you're doing right by them. You're doing you're, the stressors of being a parent. Absolutely. So you're a father, husband, mentor, teacher, advisor, and you're very active within the CSU community because it feels like anytime I go to Canvas Stadium or go somewhere, I happen to run into you. You're, you're super active. Uh, how do you manage to balance all of those hats? Well, um... I, that's a wonderful question. I'm happy to talk about that, but I, I also I want to clarify the disclaimer of uh, that 
you know, what the things shared may be oh, that certainly. of me personally and maybe not of the university or the college in all experiences. Because when I talk about, again, my personal, my, the world outside of school or work, mm-hmm. you know, the things that really do bring balance are um, a lot of things like, you know, uh, hanging out with friends or I can appreciate a good cigar and a good scotch every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, reading uh, a coffee um, all of the, I, I, I enjoy being inspired and I get into, uh, the more things that, that can, uh, that, uh, I can, uh, I can find inspiration from and that, that, that makes for a great day. And I try to be in tune with that. So, um, we work hard as, as, as you know, this work is, it's, it's really, uh, it can be pretty taxing. It can uh, be. Yeah. And, uh, and, in so many ways, you know, what we advocate for is more than just our jobs. It's, it's uh you know it's a lot of things are personal you know and everything that we're fighting for it doesn't always quit at five o'clock right so it really is important one of the things i pride myself in is having a home where um where it is peaceful and having uh created a a family dynamic that that is that and then there's so there's times here in fort collins you know it's kind of nice to and and enjoy one of the many breweries that we have absolutely and the community that we have here um uh, so those are things that i i think it took me a while to figure out uh Mm -hmm. but i now recognize how important it was especially during this dissertation and you know during the doctoral program um the pausing and uh, and yeah. uh, and the making time for yourself, yeah. finding community, um, and uh, sometimes that was few and far between, especially during the COVID times. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. during COVID times, uh, I think uh, the lockdown, the quarantine, all of it uh, forced us to really reflect on ourselves. Um, I'm going to go off script a little bit and ask: sure. Was there any moments during that lockdown quarantine? Were you, what were you learning about yourself, or what did what did you come to learn about yourself? Sure, sure, um, and more so than than just myself. But I was learning that the impact of not having contact with people mm-hmm. and seeing what that did to our students, and seeing what that did to us and my friends and my friendships, and you know, was was mind boggling. I right. mean, we went from you know being at home for <clears throat> excuse me a couple days to months and you know and and then you realize well when was the last time you went to a social gathering or when was the last time you went to this or that and or the guilt factor of visiting someone because of the fear of passing something or you know not knowing where they were at i mean Mm -hmm. a very recent incident uh, uh, i think situation that uh i think correlates to that is my wife uh her her uh college friend or I mean her uh, school teacher mm-hmm. had a, a, a baby recently and um, we're all excited for her, you know and uh, we're excited for them and uh, you know we're, they live here and I think in, in, in most situations you know people would we would be like well let's go see the baby or hey have right. them come over and, and things right. like that but now the fear of uh, and this is you know the fact that we've gotten past a lot of the worst but you know the the fear of uh, of passing anything over to to oh an gosh, infant yeah. is a thing that uh, and those simple missing those moments and not being there for even the mom as a friend or the family or saying hey let's go we'll bring you dinner tonight because right. of the fear of just you know of, of passing something to to a, an infant uh-huh. those I mean that's well it seems minute it's it, it's kind of a big deal you know and I for was sure. thinking well I was like I'm wondering would we we had a kid. We'd want friends to come over and stuff, but and that's not the case anymore. You can't just assume 
that stopping by somebody's house, like, you know, traditionally, right. those are things that, uh, you know, I felt very comfortable with, with my friends and Absolutely. having my friends yeah. just come over. <laughs> I was growing up with that idea of, hey, mm-hmm. you know, let's cruise around town or let's go visit this person, not calling, not, not saying anything. And that, those times are kind of gone, man. They go yeah. by the wayside. So, um, and that was devastating. That had a direct impact on um, some of the best leaders, mm-hmm. um, some of the best students, some of the best, uh, um, you know, uh, professionals because of, um, I mean, we've seen it academically. We've seen it in so many different mental health. Uh, the mere fact of not, uh, of going home by yourself, you know, our students were going home to a room that was empty and quiet it was devastating devastating to recognize that there was little that we could do oftentimes you know in our roles as professions and 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 with our experience in in these areas you know we have an answer for a lot of things that our students are going through we have you know solutions they come to us because of those solutions and oftentimes if they if they hear us out and they try them you know we can get them through these things right but this was an area where we our hands were tied and we could not do anything Mm. and um and that was devastating. So experiencing things like that and loss within the families and recognizing what funerals now look like, you know, or mm-hmm. um, yeah. all of the celebratory things, you know, as, you know, Latinos, we, we enjoy, you know, celebrating and having they get these togethers big get-togethers. For sure. And, yeah. And that was, um, that was uh, sometimes taken away, and that was really weird and tough to understand. I think we're going to be feeling that impact for a long, a long time. Uh, I agree. I think uh, COVID forced the community uh, all around, I think, in the United States to really think about how uh, how we treat others, um, uh, those mass mag- mandates, uh, whether you're for or against, it's still being conscious about the other person, uh, right? And and you're absolutely right uh, when, it ta- when it comes to the Latino community, Latinx community, that that impacted how we do get together. I do, I do remember way before COVID, uh, as you and I were getting to know each other, you invited me over like, hey, come over, get something to eat. Uh, and I remember that camaraderie. I remember the the, the establishment and our, the rapport that you would build with others. Um, and to know that that was gone for you, that uh, first, I'm very sorry that that happened. And two, hopefully we get to get together for asadas or for whatever in the future. That invitation is still open for sure. <laughs> always, always open. Well, I appreciate that, Elias. Can you talk to us about the hobbies that you got into? So you got into fishing, painting. How did that, did that get introduced to you? Was it something that grew on you? How did that happen for you? Sure. Um, <laughs> painting, I, I would say, and both fishing and painting correlated from the same thing. I would say um, the, the fishing came from my father. You know, we, we were, uh, because we were from the lower income bracket, we were in the you know, um, in, in those situations, such a big family, it mm-hmm. was, um, it was necessary for my father to, to go fishing and, you know, so they would stock the lakes in Greeley and <laughs> Glenmere and all the lakes. My dad would, would you know, which lakes would be stocked. He knew at the time, you know, it was eight fish for adults and, and four fish for kids. So this is wow. the one time he wanted all the grandkids, all the kids together. And, <laughs> and there we were putting whatever bait we had. But uh, ideally, you know, we could bring home 20, 30 trout and wow. you know, perch. And in Texas, we were catching perch by the, you know, filling up uh, bread bags full of them. Wow. But that would provide food, you know. Yeah, and, and certainly. It was a great meal, too, you know. Not the healthiest <laughs> when we're frying everything. But, um, but while it was a necessity, 
it was also probably the most precious times that I got to spend with my dad out in the lake and mm. and just to see him and and spend time with him or to be out in in, in nature and and to see again agriculture and its beauty in that and to understand it at that at, at that lens it created beautiful memories so that's how fishing came and I was hoping that my son and I would have the same thing mm-hmm. and yeah. man graphics or the computers and <laughs> technologies just robbed us of that man he's got a whole he's like dad how long do we got to be out here man and, uh, yeah. so uh, it's a little different you know and I gotta Absolutely. make a little more effort for that but uh and then the painting happened in 2018, you know, um, uh, my father was almost 80 and, and, uh, and my stepmother, mm-hmm. uh, they were in a car accident in West Texas and both passed away in that I'm accident. I'm sorry to hear that. So um, that, um, I didn't really know. Uh, and unfortunately, in our family, we've just experienced so much loss within family and then and, and all. But, you know, my father was and is, you know, my, my, my mentor and um, was, um, you know, my king really and mm-hmm. uh, so I had the utmost respect for him and always 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 and it wasn't even um, you know because of strict discipline or anything like that however um, you know he could ask for anything and I would have I would have done it in a heartbeat you know um, yeah. so it wasn't fear but it was really respect um, that I had for him and I and uh, so when we when I lost him um, and then I, I had lost my mother at eight my biological mother I'd lost at eight so when I lost him and, and and my stepmother, who was a part of my life for so many years, mm-hmm. it was devastating, and uh, I really didn't know how to process. And and if I was being transparent, you know, or at least um, I I recognize that Latino men uh, and maybe Latinos in general, but I knew that Latino men um, haven't always done the best of, of uh, recognizing those emotions and and being able to talk about those emotions. Being able to talk or deal or dress with mental health, mm-hmm. um, and and um, and it impacted me naturally. And the only way that I knew how to uh, process some of that was through painting. So for the first time ever, I'd always been drawing and stuff like that, but I've never picked up oil paints. And uh, in 2017, I just started oil painting. Yeah. And one of my favorite paintings was a, a lion that um, I think depicts who I was and who I was at that time. And who I am and where I'm going and since then I recognized that well I could do this for others and so I started painting pets my friends that you know they would lose their their, their pets for some reason or mm-hmm. um, there were um, some things that were in their life that were special mm-hmm. so I've been fortunate enough to do a handful of um, paintings that some took me 10 hours some took me 40 wow. um, and um, I've kept I think maybe two uh, I made one for my son, uh, and what I love about that uh, medium has been, um, and I shared this with uh, with my friend, is just really the inadequacies and the uh, inadequate and the flaws of of art in general. You know, uh-huh. especially hand painted art. You know, it's gonna have flaws, and all of Certainly. my paintings have have that. Right. But um, I I'm grateful that my friends recognize that. Uh, the time and the attention and that I, it's my best and and the why uh, is what matters and that's uh, I think that would be my life's intentions is to recognize the why yeah right? and uh, that's been good for me so that's wonderful Elias can you uh, can you tell us what else should uh, listeners know about you if they're getting to know you Whew. I mean um, I uh, 
That's a that's a deep question. <laughs> I mean, and there's so many things that I uh, uh, I am proud about, and there's so many things that uh, bring me joy. But I would say that the greatest joy has been um, the investment in others. I would share that with my son, and I would share that one of the biggest life lessons for me mm-hmm. has been, um, and while I value money and I appreciate the nice things, you know, uh, the greatest rewards have always been the, the investment in others and seeing others grow and help them get to and through. Um, and I've been fortunate in the last 14 years to, to be a part of higher education and to continue advocating for what it is that I believe and what is provided opportunities for me and my family and, and so many others. And um, Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so, Elias, we're going to rewind the clock a bit. Can you talk to us about your upbringing and what was that like for you? Sure, sure. Um, so being the youngest of seven, I, I held all of those identities. So for anybody that's read the birth order, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> the and, birth and charts and everything. Exactly. <laughs> Zodi- the zodiac and everything. I am all, every bit of, uh, of the last born and so I was the baby of the family, and I got the treatment until my mom was gone, and then I got the other kind of WWF treatment from my brothers. <laughs> so all of that, man, and it, I've had a rich life in that. I was, I've yeah. always been surrounded by people who love me and, and, and love. So uh, when my mom passed away at eight years old, and I was, I think, in fourth grade, mm-hmm. it was, again, it rocked my world. It rocked my world, and uh, I didn't know how to handle that or process that, and uh, it created a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. I've shared in the past that uh, prior to that, two years prior to my mom passing away, my father was in an oil field accident and uh, burned 75% of his body. Was oh, my gosh. Burning, so he was in ICU for years. And, wow. Um, uh, and that impacted our, our income. And that impacted who we were. I mean, here we were, seven of us. Mm-hmm. Um, my father remarried. We turned into, you know, seven into 12. And um, uh, But still, my father not able to work and, and still mouths to feed and, and you know, it was, it was pretty, uh, I, at that point, we didn't know what poverty, I didn't know we were in poverty, but, you know, looking back, it was pretty fair to say that we were, we were, we were pretty impoverished, and uh, so working the fields was a, was a thing for us, even though uh-huh. we were second um, generation Mexican-American, you know, it was common for us to, to go and work the, the, the fields at the time, and then just working in general. Yeah. Making money somehow was, was always a, a thing. So we moved to Greeley shortly after uh, my mother passed away. And um, and we we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, there was nine of us. So my older brothers wow. moved out. Nine of us in a one-bedroom apartment. Wow. And, uh, man, when we got into Section 8 housing uh, there in Greeley, it was like, it was like uh, winning the lottery, man. Really? Was, there was like four <laughs> beds and four bedrooms. <laughs> And uh, even though we had to share a room, we were like, man, we, were, we thought we were in heaven. Yeah. And we had a bus taking us to school, and we were like, we were free and reduced lunch. I mean, life was all right. And we had a, yeah. after school, we would go to uh, the Boys and Girls Club, would have a bus, and, and uh, we'd go and, and, and until the bus took us home. So, wow. I mean, uh, we really didn't know what we didn't have, but what we did have was still pretty special. And what those communities do bring were, um, um, you know, <clears throat> friends that lived together you know mm-hmm. we were all in the same similar units it wasn't like uh i mean if you had nice shoes that was cool but we knew where to get the mexican candy we knew where to get the icicles you know what apartment was selling this and that we right. would go play basketball and do all these things and uh and we all knew where financially where we all were so we weren't trying to impress anybody and it was just a fun uh 
and uh, a, a, and a good time. I mean, and uh, and um, we were in some tough schools. I mean, District Six was was really challenging at the time. They weren't, um, you know. I don't know if I think there's so many factors that that um, can talk or that correlate. You know, whether it be large classes, whether it be well, what kind of support structures. You know, who's valuing what? Did how many of my friends got to uh, a college counselor? I don't ever recall visiting a college counselor. I had more, you know, more of my friends, you know, uh, dropping out of school. And I found, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was, I mean, many of my friends had already started families, wow. had already either been incarcerated uh-huh. or, or got caught up in, in things or were working. You know, they dropped out of school to work. And that was the, that was the norm. So uh-huh. for us, uh, you know, just graduating high school was a pretty big accolade. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. yeah, going to college was even bigger and uh sure um and that kind of takes us to that that second chapter yeah so did your family place a lot of importance in education not at all no um and and i don't want to make them sound bad because i don't think it was with ill intention Mm -hmm. but they simply taught me what they knew and that was hard work ethics and uh and 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 to provide support to family you know they were very happy with us going to church uh, getting a good job, and and I don't care where you where you lived or how you lived, I don't care where you drove, but you know you provided for your family, and that was their big thing. So I could have easily graduated high school, and my father, you know, would have just been just as proud. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really, they just didn't understand education. Right. Um, so there we were, and we, so when I say that, and this will get us into you know um, what Upward Bound taught us, or Trio programs, you know, Thomas, but. I don't recall ever being asked about my homework or being told, hey, go study, go do your homework. I don't mm-hmm. recall much of that, you know, that kind of discipline. Um, um, and there's a lot of kids. I mean, yeah. there was just Plenty there of kids was too. other priorities that were that were kind of feeding us was kind of keep right. us alive. It was kind of a, a more important <laughs> thing. So right. I really don't recall ever having my parents go to parent-teacher conferences. Uh, I, I, it was, so it was... It was that, but I didn't think there was anything different. I didn't realize there was anything different. Okay. Um, and uh, in regards to who I was in middle school, high school, and elementary, you know, I was always just getting by, always just getting mm-hmm. by. I mean, mm-hmm. so C's, I'd be good. I mean, and I was a good kid. I wasn't out there trying to, I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't involved in gangs mm-hmm. or uh, any of those things. But I also, um, I wasn't studious. I was just pretty much almost in, invisible in the classroom mm, um, uh-huh. and uh, I had a few teachers that saw something in me and would ask me after class they realized that I could draw or paint and stuff and I remember one teacher miss call Janet call and throw a little shout out to her um, <laughs> uh, she uh, she said Elias could you would you mind doing this mural for me on the wall and I did this land mountains you know a painting and I thought, man, I was so honored that she would see some value in me, see my talent, and then to allow me to do something like that, I was I was blown away that she'd show me that attention. And uh, so there was little things like that um, that were glimpses of it. Yeah. But other than that, man, I was just um, I was just getting by. I really don't think I would have been missed uh, in in high school had I stopped showing up, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. And I recognize um, I recognize the impact of that. Absolutely. Um, did you look up to anybody while you were growing up? 
Absolutely. I've been fortunate. Again, I was involved in, uh, you know, Christian uh, faith. And, and so there was people there that I, I, um, I, I really valued and I looked up to who were doing some great things. And, you know, the Christian faith is oftentimes, you know, um, uh, you know, people that instill peace and instill love and, and, you know, people that are, you know, kindness and compassion. So I've always been, you know, um, attracted to, to those things. And um, so... I, I found I found I found people who who um, you know permeated those those characteristics. So um, I think growing up, it wasn't until you know there were some teachers, but it wasn't until um, you know, years later in college where um, uh, well, uh, upward bound for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, let me. I mean, I didn't know if we <laughs> want to go there right out the gate, but I mean, I'll, I'll do it right quick, man. Paul Thayer. Is a mentor is uh, you know somebody I deeply respect and 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 admire and and uh, am fortunate enough to to have been uh, under his leadership for a, a period of time and then there was Nate Easley there was Nathan Cadenas there was you know Kurt De La Cruz they were all counselors there in Upper Bound and I would say that that was my first glimpse of looking at people mm-hmm. who were um, men that were. Uh, that were living a life that was different from me. It mm-hmm. wasn't that there were men working just in manufacturing and Montforts or and nothing against that. You know, I respected all of that hard work, but that to me was really all I'd known. Yeah, um, yeah. Up until that point, I, was, I started to see a whole different life of men that were doing things, getting paid, having a living, and you know, advocating and connecting with people that looked different than they than they did. So it was we it, that was special. Yeah, um, Jana Schwartz was another amazing. Um, uh, she was part of CHE, so Center for Human Enrichment at UNC, and she was uh, my advisor. And uh, she was white, and she was she's seen me for who I am today, in a time that I was lost. And mm-hmm. so I cannot I cannot give enough credit to the advisors and the people that are instilling hope in people that mm-hmm. don't look like them and students that don't look like them that recognize that the paths will look different than the traditional uh, you know predictive modeling is great and all and we all have our um, you know structures for advising of what high risk and stuff are but I remember to for me to graduate mm-hmm. um, my final semester I did 26 credits and um, uh, and I had to you know I, I, I had to uh, uh, graduate I had to start working I had to move on to this next chapter and that's Absolutely. just what I had to do and on top of that you know I was working a, a part-time job and I was I, I was already um, you know married my son you know was was born so those are things that sometimes people have to do and unless you have someone that you can sit down and talk about the realities of this is just what I have to do right now right. Uh, and they say I believe you can do it um, that was powerful and later on she invited me dr schwartz invited me to her dissertation defense mm-hmm. and i just couldn't be more um honored to to have met some people like her and recognize how important that role was um for me Absolutely. and then since then i've just met so many wonderful uh, people but uh, those names paul Thiers, the jenna schwartz and jenna calls were were inspirational to me for sure amazing how would your friends and family and colleagues describe you? Hopefully authentic, maybe sometimes funny, hopefully <laughs> handsome, hopefully, uh, but uh, caring. I, I really, I, 
And if it's not that, I, I would be disappointed. If people really didn't recognize how I wanted to genuinely connect with people, oftentimes, um, you know, I think if I'd consider myself a, a pet, you know, the idea of a Labrador or those dogs that always want to kind of just be <laughs> around people and want to want people to like them, uh-huh. um, that's me for sure. You know, I, I always have cared about people and um, uh, um I seen that, you know, I was involved in the ministry and that was what led me to the ministry. It was like, you know, helping the lost and being there for the broken. I understood, you know, the Christian faith because I, I believed in like what you do unto the least of them, you, you know, you do unto me. Mm-hmm. You know, first shall be last, last shall be first. All of those things of uh, humility and the servant leadership style I, 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 I believed in and all that. Um, so I would hope that um, people would at least understand, you know, the intention of the efforts of me wanting to connect at that level and just wanting to um, build people up. And, uh, you know, that doesn't always happen. I'm only human, you know, flawed, but um, I oftentimes share uh, how we each have this weapon and it's, it's a hammer and the hammer's our tongue and, you know, we can use it to build up or tear people down. And, uh, and I'm, I know I've done both, you know. Um, but I want to use it to build people up. I recognize how important words are and how important um, building people up, instilling hope, and, and that's, that's what I want to be known for, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, for the audience, Elias, can you tell us, what were you like middle school, elementary and middle school? What was, what was Elias like at that point? Sure. It's funny that um, <laughs> in elementary year, you know, I was I was completely opposite of where I am today. I mm. think if people would see me now, they'd be like, "Elias, keep your shirt on at potlucks." You know, <laughs> don't be karaoke, and, and you know all of these things. You know, I'm definitely a more you know extroverted person now, and I really value social aspect of things. I'm really comfortable in those spaces and really enjoy humor. Just, but back then it was completely different. I, again, I remember I was the baby, so mm-hmm. I remember times of. I would just have to tell mom that, you know, my stomach hurt. And I was like, proof, peace, while everybody had to go to school. I was out, man. And as soon as those doors closed, I was out and about playing, dude. So that was all I had to do. I never had to be social. But um, my brother, I got to give a shout out to my brother, Eli Quinones. You know, he's uh, he's four years older than me. And he was my, uh, and, and is an inspiration and my mentor. He's, um, and we had a bond that uh, oftentimes people like uh, twins would have you know um, he was the person but you know um, I felt safe around him all the time I mean and but I was that shy kid that wouldn't talk to anybody but him I'd get sick if he wanted to go stay the night at somebody else's house you know I couldn't be I just always wanted to be around him it was interesting mm-hmm. and uh, so it took a while for me to get past that I remember kinder being a struggle because I couldn't socialize. I mean, I just wanted to be loved at home and spoiled, really. I was a spoiled kid. And um, <laughs> and it, it turned into just horrible habits. In third grade, I flunked out. I didn't know my multiplication tables, and I flunked out. I remember um, being called out of a classroom every Friday, man, for after multiplication table in Pulse, Texas. And... Uh, and we would get two swats with a with a wooden oh paddle my gosh. for filling a, a, yeah. a math test. Yeah, Oof. I could tell you the name of the other person, and her and I, man, we we know what happens. <laughs> and they're like, go to the hallway, and 
And oh, yeah, no. yeah it, it was crazy. But the paddling and stuff, it's, I think it's still a thing in West Texas. Which I, I think it is, yeah. Some corporal wild. punishment, I think. It is a lot, right? <laughs> but my parents allowed it, man. I'm like, Dad, why would you have this? Oh, no. You know, but um, it wasn't until uh, later on I developed uh, some confidence. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from or when that shift happened. I think it had largely to do when my mom passed and then just recognizing that uh, – look, this world's going to be tough and, and you're going to have to figure it out. Right. And um, humor and connecting with people was one of those things that um, that um, that filled my cup. All right. Um, so, and then it led to who I am today and that is a little bit more gracious, a little bit more extroverted, <laughs> a little bit more fun. Absolutely. Uh, so you moved through elementary, middle school, uh, and then you got to high school. What type of support did you receive there while in high school? I remember again. I was this kid. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, you know. Um, I would say I was almost invisible. But I remember one time uh, in high school where uh, a teacher wanted to, to to meet with me after class and, and accused me of smoking pot. I had never done drugs before. I'd never drank. I, uh-huh. I'd, my first drink was until I was eighteen, um, and I started recognizing that man. I was. I was in awe. I was mm-hmm. really baffled at why someone would see me as that. And um, mm-hmm. um, I just, it was, it, was, it was interesting. It was an interesting time of um, not connecting, not connecting. Um, I, I would, uh, I, you know, I would talk to a lot of different groups. You know how um, high school can be different groups. Oh, certainly. You know, so there's the, the kids from Mexico, so I would connect there because of, you know, but my Spanish wasn't all that great, so there was that. Mm-hmm. I I, I uh, never got into sports because it was always work. You know, at fifteen, I was working at Taco Bell, and as soon as I get out of school, I want to go to work or yeah, and and stuff because we never had money. So it wasn't until I started earning my own money that we're rec- I seen a experience a whole different life. So I missed out on proms, I missed out on sports, I missed out on a, a lot of things. I think, um, and even connecting with friends. So. I don't, um, so it, it wasn't the glorious thing by any means. I wasn't the most popular by any means. But um, that's actually when Upward Bound came into the picture uh, wow. in 92 and 93. Right on. Talk to us about that. How did Upward Bound find you or was it the other way around? Oh, definitely Upward Bound found me. And um, and, and to my parents, I think it was no different than uh, Boys and Girls Clubs. Because it was like, if it's got a bus, it's going to feed you. <laughs> and it's going to take you. Yeah. Hey, home. <laughs> Good luck. So and that's pretty much what Upward Bound was. And uh, so for those, I, I don't I mean, your listeners probably could tell everything about Upward Bound. But I, I want to be, uh, you know, uh, Upward Bound is part of a TRIO program. And TRIO is focusing on first gen. Um, you know, oftentimes limited income um, students, and that's exactly who and what I was. And mm-hmm. so, how they discovered me, I have no idea. I don't re- recall. Actually, I re- do recall my brother uh, being a part of Upper Bound in Texas Tech, mm-hmm. uh, but not really recognizing what it was, uh, other than the fact that he's leaving home, man, and I was hating life at that time because, you know, but it, it happened to me. I got picked up, you know, in, yeah. in Greeley, and, and uh, they were like, hey, this is, uh, you're going to go uh for eight weeks i believe and and uh, <laughs> wow yeah yeah and uh it was so new man it was so new to me scary yeah and it was transformational transformational, transformational. i like it that. was powerful man I, like that. I didn't have the best grades and somehow they said uh, let's do this and my parents allowed me to go mm-hmm. it's the weirdest thing I ever do to, to i've never been away from my family for uh, days on end much less a week well i guess you know a church camp it was a week but 
never weeks upon weeks weeks upon weeks yeah wild to me and then yeah. to be invited into a college where I knew little to nothing about uh-huh. nothing nothing no, nothing about what it was to be a college student nothing to know about any of that life and here I was getting on a bus and the taking my nappy old nasty pillow and some saddle blankets <laughs> and you know uh-huh. others had their kits because they knew what to bring I didn't mm-hmm. know Jack I mean I was just I, I just took what I had yeah and uh, but I'm in oh man I remember walking into and I want to say it's one of our older residence halls here at CSU and um uh, and I'm like they have a pool table in the lobby we're gonna get our own room and dude my mind was mind blowing for the first time that that we went to the dining halls mm-hmm. and they said hey this kid this card right here gets you all you can eat and wow. I'm like. You mean this is a buffet? And I'm like, well, <laughs> we can get lunch and dinner. Um, Dang. I was, I was floored, man. I was floored. I said, Shh, don't even take me back home, man. I'm going to live here. I could not believe what 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 was happening. I really, it, it was mind-boggling to mm-hmm. me. And then they allowed us to use the rec center. And I'm like, that was the first time I learned to play racquetball. And I seen weights. And mm-hmm. I was like that way. And. It was just amazing, dude. Yeah. Amazing. This is the first time where I have like access to the latest amenities mm-hmm. that everybody else had access to. Mm-hmm. And that's that's rare. That was yeah. rare for, for kids that were coming from where I came from. Very. Uh, so was it before Upward Bound or after Upward Bound did you start thinking about college? Oh, jeez. Man, uh, definitely after Upward Bound. I had no idea what college was. I really would have... I. I don't think I would, I know for a fact, I would not be here today had it not been for Upper Bound True. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know for a fact. Were there any colleges that were in your mind already at that point that oh. you're like, you know what, I want to go to? Not at all. Not, not at all? at all. In fact, maybe not even, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I fell out of Upper Bound after my second year. Mm-hmm. But by then, I'd already been shown so I'd already been showed the Willy Wonka factory, dude. so <laughs> I mean that was in there, dude. And I was like, the idea so, was planted exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, I fell out because of my grades. You know, you have to have a certain grade to get Definitely, back in. Yeah. And, um, and I wish, I wish um, we would have been more on top of that, or you know, I wish because, but nonetheless, um, it had already instilled in me some things. It taught me. Some of the greatest memories, man. The ropes court, the white water rafting, the skiing. Wow. Yeah. Going to the sand dunes, being around so many women and, and beautiful girls. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is a time where, man, I was, I was going nuts. I'm like, what? And my friends, and, you know, we were swapping clothes. And I was learning so much, man. I met a person from Tonga. And, and then Kurt de la Cruz was from Hawaii. And I'm like, is this big guy who's not even Mexicano, but he looks like me, you know, mm. and, and he, we love food, and he's happy-go-lucky, but he's talking pigeon, and so the culture dynamics, man, and, and I've seen what, you know, students from more urban areas were, were uh, coming from Denver yeah, and yeah. seeing their life, and, you know, it was just, it was so beautiful. Yeah. It was such a beautiful experience for me and Wonderful. transformational. So, what was your family's reaction, uh, or, or did you did they have a reaction? If if you talked to them about college, or you expressed interest in college, did they have a reaction to you? Did they say anything to you? 
if I was still brought up college to my family at that time, I'm sure they would have said, you know, sure, go for it. Uh, but they just didn't understand it. I mean, that yeah. could have been just, that was just as foreign to them as, as um, you know, saying that you wanted to go into maybe even the army or, or you know, uh, they just didn't understand that world. So it would have meant, it wouldn't have meant much, to be honest. I didn't have anyone in the household saying you're going to college. I've never, I didn't have teachers telling me you're going to college. I didn't have advice, no one really. I didn't have my friends. I've seen very few of my friends. I, I, see, I, don't, I don't recall seeing many of my family members. Um, you know, these are things we didn't talk about. Yeah. It would have been more, I would have been more encouraged to, and this is actually what I did as a Latino male was to go work. Find a good job, yeah. and I was working summers. Any as soon as I turned eighteen, which again I'm still in high school, I was working the pickle dock. I was working grown man jobs, yeah. and still going to school and and making the best money that I ever had. So I had I was like Shh, I've never seen that. I was probably making more money than my parents. I remember, I remember my parents living on twelve hundred bucks a month. Yeah, and there's there is seven of us at it, you know, in in the in the. Uh, uh, Project Eight housing complex. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine twelve hundred bucks a month? Twelve hundred bucks a month. That's I mean, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, so the way I, I got to give credit to my stepmother, you know, for uh, for for doing that and still doing things like paying tithes and you know she. I, I look back and I can't even. I lacked little at that time, but I wasn't encouraged to go to college and and nor was that education just a priority. Work was a priority. Work That's was what a priority. We mm. And the more you work, the better. The longer okay. you work, the better. Overtime, even better. Um, you know, if you got uh, $9 an hour, even even better. Man. Wow. You got a good job. If you get, uh, you know, benefits, shoot, you're, you made it, you know. That yeah. was what was valued in my home. And that's, I understand the why. Yeah. But uh, I, I, was, I, I recognize that... Uh, there's one thing I could speak to Latino, you know, families today is uh, is um, recognizing and, and prioritizing education. Absolutely. Um, so then, walk us through uh, from your first to final year in high school. What was that like for you? Man, it, I could have easily just not made it every year, every year, every semester. I was. Flunkin', shoot, I thought that was my middle name, you know, not passing classes. Uh, I really was 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 just, um, I didn't value grades. I didn't, I mean, I, I don't, I, but I would go to, I was a rule follower, so I went to classes. Mm-hmm. I did what I needed to do. I didn't ditch, I rarely did, all that stuff. But um, there was no pressure, no accountability to, to pass. And um, not that, I, I mean, I wanted to graduate. Um, but only because I felt, well, you need a, you need a diploma to get a good job. You need a diploma to get any job. Right. Right. Um, so that was, that was only where my mind was. It wasn't until Upward Bound and having this experience here at CSU that I discovered college is a thing and, and, Mm, yeah. um, And I seen what college students lived and, uh, and I remember one of my classes being entomology and we had a professor, uh, Similar to Matt Camper here, but uh, they uh, they took us out to to the grassy field, and I'm like, man, we do this in post all day long, catch horny toads and grasshoppers, and feed them to our cats and everything. But now we're doing it to study, and we're learning that there's degrees in this, and there's majors, and we're, like, huh. we're able to pin them onto a board and, yeah. and like study and draw them. And I was like, my mind was blown away. I was really like, 
this is amazing. Um, but even then, uh, so I graduated um, Greeley West, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought that I wanted to be an elementary teacher, and mm-hmm. uh, I got admitted into UNC somehow. I remember being a part of a summer program called Business Week, and uh, I didn't understand what that was about. Uh-huh. Um, I was already living on my own and renting my buddy's basement when I wow. got admitted into UNC. Wow. Um, uh, and I was working a full-time job. I would leave high school at uh, 2.45, I would start uh, my work at 3 and work till 11, EFTC, Electronic Fab Technology Corporation. Yeah. And I would do that every every day until I started college. Um, and then the same thing, I just I knew that my schedule at college at UNC, I just had to be out by 3 o'clock because I'm working second shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was all I knew. And by then, my brother said, hey, you can come live with us. So I lived with him, and uh, I drove this nasty, nasty, beat-up, ring-a-ding <laughs> pickup, Datsun, probably ring you know, 80s pickup, and somehow it got me to school, but I knew nothing of school. I didn't, have, I didn't ever meet with a financial aid advisor. I never right. met with anybody. So I got in, and here I am, just accepted loans after loans, because I knew nothing better. I didn't do my FAFSA, so I don't even know, I don't know how. Um, it was just weird, um, mm-hmm. and... I I remember uh, I remember being so disconnected. I did it because I knew I wanted something better. Yeah, that was all I knew. Yeah. and I was like, uh, a teacher would be cool. Yeah. Um, and I failed. I failed out. I have you know my first semester, fifteen credits. Till this day's on my transcript wow. of W's, fifteen withdrawals um, uh, that are W's, and I wasn't invited back. And uh, I, so here I was dealing with imposters. Here I was dealing with everything. I was like, I don't belong here. Uh, and I fell out, so you can imagine how it affirms what you're already feeling mm-hmm. that you didn't belong you you aren't smart enough you are a knucklehead and mm-hmm. and and I was I, I mean I got through all I got through each of those grades skimming by really not being prepared for college and mm-hmm. every and I just kept they kept moving me up they kept promoting me or, or, or whatever mm-hmm. but um I just didn't have the discipline or the study habits I didn't know any better okay. I was lost man. How much time did you take off after you uh, you said you failed out or you had yeah. to leave the university? Did you take a lot of time off before you returned? Yeah, uh, it took me a while to ever return, and mm-hmm. it wasn't until I thought I wanted to go into computer information systems. So I went back to Ames, and then I changed that to criminal justice because again I had this heart and compassion to change our community, and yeah. so um, I, I I tried that. I had 18 credits of criminal justice degree at Ames Community College. I'm grateful for the community colleges because that provided a different, a different lens than what my experience was for at a four-year university. Mm-hmm. It was just so big, so many people, and I was I was a number. At least at a community college, I was looking around. I was like, you know, okay, I was seeing other people. You know, there was, um, it was a different pace, a little slower. You know, classes were smaller. People were, you know. Instructors and professors were, were a little easier on you. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was working it, but and and then by then, um, uh, by then, which I think was years, years later, um, I was I was uh, recognizing how I enjoyed learning, and I was learning, I was oh. reading, I was doing the homework, and now I'm starting yeah. to rec- realize, shoot, if I put a little effort in this, I'm gonna get something out. Yeah, right? yeah. So I went from. That I went to be a correction officer. I took that degree and went to be a correction officer because, again, 
that's not where you would go to fix the loss. It's <laughs> not exactly uh, uh, the, what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah. And it was tough. I went through the training, and uh, the training was intense, man. And, oh, it sounds intense. It was like 12 of us, I think, that were started, and, and yeah. only two made it. And I wasn't one of them, and it took months. And I had to pass polygraph tests. I had to pass all wow. of these tests. I got my... Um, I became a peace officer, you uh-huh. know, after so many, you get, you, you get sworn in as a peace officer and I had 160 hours of, of, um, you know, this trainings and, and, um, it was an experience, but you know, I, I was like, and I know half these people here. Yeah. This is the, that was a, it was, a, it was, a, um, I don't say this proudly, but that was one place where diversity wasn't an issue, mm. uh, and that hurt, man. That yeah. was I was I was really struggling. And I struggled with the way um, I struggled with the way officers were treating uh, them, and mm-hmm. I struggled the way officers were treating all of us that were in training, and just I seen the power dynamics. And I was working for the sheriff county's uh, department. We we're doing face to face training with inmates, and we were not training, but uh, you know these pods are eighty. And face-to-face, um, and uh, I was just, I struggled more with the officers than I did with, the, and the system than I did with uh, inmates, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so I went through about four months of that and uh, didn't make the cut, and, and they said, hey, nice try. <laughs> <laughs> but I was I was hating life, man. I hated going to work, and I was making the best I'd Dang. ever made. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was an experience, but... Uh, I went to, I was like, hey, I could do, I got into the ministry again in a sense. And my buddy, uh, he's like, hey, we're looking for teachers. It was a Hope Co-op, so you just kind of needed to be like a teacher. You know, most of the kids' trains was coming from uh, from online education. And uh, we were teaching, like, life skills and gym and, you know, Bible class. Right, and right. we didn't need, you know, credentials to do those things. So uh, we did that. And then I realized that, man, I... I can't help these students in some of these subjects, you know? And I was like, I felt like I was doing a disservice. Mm, I, like, mm-hmm. I got to get back into school. And in right. seven, I did that. And by then I was married and, mm-hmm. you know, our son was about three at the time. So in 2007, I returned to UNC. That's awesome. Hey there. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. Are you seeking guidance to enhance your TRIO project's effectiveness and success? Look no further. Nosotros Education Center, NEC, is here to empower your TRIO project with expert consulting services. NEC's mission is to promote the effectiveness and impact of TRIO programs. Since 2003, NEC has specialized in providing professional development and in-service staff trainings, allowable cost services, for TRIO projects across the country. The team at NEC, with over 60 years of combined TRIO experience, offers customized workshops and seminars for project staff, compliance assessments, external evaluations, working on and submitting APRs, database customization and training, developments of policies and procedures manuals, and project implementation or reorganization services. Additionally, NEC has secured over $774 million in federal funding with a 92% success rate through their live and on-demand proposal workshops, assistance with data collection and review, detailed technical reviews, and comprehensive proposal development services. Join the hundreds of colleges, agencies, and TRIO projects across the country who benefited from NEC's expertise. 
Nosotros Education Center, your partner in TRIO's project success. Visit their website at nosotros.edu.org. Again, that's nosotros.edu.org. And now, back to the podcast. Uh, so, very quickly, UNC, why was that your choice school? Why did you want to go to UNC? Convenience. Convenience? And, uh, again, who I was and what I was, I mean, if it was convenience and it was going to accept me, I was about it. There was no way in the world um, that I would be willing to uh, travel or go out of state or do any of that stuff. That's unheard of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in my time um, to, to leave home and to go that far away from family. I would have never done it, even till this day. Yeah. When I was looking at PhD programs, I would not look further than where I was at because, you know, um, I just—it's just the—it's—it's just—I don't know if it's comfort level. I don't know, but the idea of leaving family so far uh, mm-hmm. was just not instilled in me. All right. Uh, sometimes, uh, Elias, and, and let me know if you feel the same way. I see this, the salary figures of majors in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math. And I've been, I begin to think to myself, dang, that's a lot of math and science. Did I pick the right field to, to you know, earn the money and all that? Were you leaning STEM? Were you wanting to be a teacher? Is that just how passionate you were about being a teacher? Well, yeah. I, 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 so my bachelor's was in, is in communication with the idea of changing the world, right? I wanted to be... My master's was in educational leadership with uh, emphasis in higher ed and student affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it was the the, the, the time of uh, again. I, I, there's some chapters that were missed there because when I got a degree in communication, there was somebody by the name of Tobias Guzman who's still there, Doctor Guzman, by the way, and he was the VP of enrollment management. And he says, "Elias, we we need someone to connect to our you know Greeley residents. Could you do this?" And I'm like. This was my first job of like, you know, getting paid to travel, getting per diems, representing the school, and I was good at it. You know, mm-hmm. I was decent at it, and um, that's when I discovered higher ed. I had no oh. idea that I could work there. I didn't understand that it was an enterprise, and uh-huh. I didn't understand all all of that. But what I did understand was that by working for them and getting paid and doing all this stuff and helping other students get there, and what made me good was that. I could meet students at their level because mm-hmm. I came from the lowest. You couldn't get any lower of misunderstanding and not understanding higher ed than what I was. So I could meet families and students at that level and be effective. And I could say, just do this and we can get you here and we can get you this and this. So, yeah, I worked for UNC for five years in, wow. in missions. And then I and then through that time, they were like, hey, and Elias, you realize that you know, as an employee, you get a hundred percent tuition discount Whoa. for you and your dependents. Whoa! Exactly, bro. Exactly. And I'm like, what? Say less, man. <laughs> I just started working on the master's degree, got into ed leadership because I was like, well, sh- I think I can, I can figure this out. And uh, my wife started going to, and uh, I can't share this. My wife's giving me permission to share this, but so she was um, born in Mexico. And received a permanent residency, you know, in, in her early years. And it wasn't until we got married years later that she became uh, received her citizenship. But with a permanent residency, she was able to get in state and be and get a teaching license, which she's always wanted to become. And uh, and being a part of that journey and being able to process and uh, to uh, for for each other mm-hmm. um, to go through that, and while raising a, a child, you know. 
yeah. um, was pretty special, and yeah. it was pretty lonely. I mean, we weren't getting the pats on the back or the encouragement from, uh, because, again, people didn't understand this. They didn't understand, my, my wife's right. family didn't understand right. how to support, and my family didn't understand how to support. So nobody really knew what we were going through. So after we were committed into higher ed and, and, and education in general, brother, you got to understand, we were living in two worlds, two mm-hmm. worlds that did not speak to each other. Yeah. These worlds didn't understand the importance of quinceaneras and you know and, and all this stuff, or or or, um, or the fact that look, we don't have parents that are going to give us or pay for our car, pay, pay pay for our insurance, pay for our, our our school, pay for our supplies, pay for anything. Right. Um. And 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 this world, you know, they just didn't understand what our classes were going to be like. They didn't yeah. understand that you had to buy textbooks that were worth a hundred dollars, one hundred fifty dollars. They've never spent that much money on clothes, much less books. Yeah. You know. So there was just so much of isolation and loneliness that came, and so we had to learn to depend on each other. And it wasn't until programs like Trio again in college. Um, that created a community of a, a space that did understand mm-hmm. those of us that were out there in the in this world, you know, and that yeah. was um, that was encouraging, and that came through. Now, you know, cultural centers weren't part of uh, the Trio program, but it's the dynamics and that's that community that they developed that were so crucial for us um, in regards to our journey and success. Absolutely, talk to us about mentors in college. Who, who were those encouraging people that kept you engaged and hooked into what you were doing and, and made you believe, like, yes, I got to keep doing this and I got to keep sure. going? My peers were, was, was a, was a I, I met some great friends, you know, and, and I'll say, you know, the Yvonne Diaz, the Chris Garcias, you know, um, people that, that did know my life, that were living, you know, a life. They were a little younger than me <laughs> at the time, but, you know, so just... We could joke, we could be real, and we were just all learning together, man. And so I, 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 I give credit to them, uh, despite you know our paths going different directions now. Um, I, I do appreciate um, what they were for me at that time. But then there was people like Eric Rineker, who's the director of, of the Upward Bound program there at, at UNC, and it wasn't mm. residential; it was a different. You know, they were coming to to UNC after school, you know, and doing classes there. So it was a different, but it was a world that I understood. So he hired me. He hired me to, to work with the students. And, of course, I was like, say less. Yeah. I would do anything for Upward Bound. And most people that are, that are true recipients and alums, you know, would say the same thing. So uh, Trish Escobar, man, she was, she was the director of the uh, of, um, Cesar Chavez Cultural Center. Um, again, Tobias Guzman. There was people like that. I remember, you know, a, a class with Manny Trevi, uh, Trevino. Uh, who was my first Mexican-American studies class, and he had me read the book, you know, A Different Mirror, and I'm just learning so much. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, um, Dr. Falcon, who, who taught me about uh, Mexican-American studies and the history and learning about the Chichimeca and Teotihuacans and the, learning the, the, the lineage of the, the uh, um, uh, from, uh, you know, indigenous communities all the way to where we are today. It was special, man, and this is the first time ever that I seen two worlds then come together. Yeah, makes sense, and I'm like, what? Um, my heritage, the taco menudo, tamales, all of these things that was my part of my culture, and yet different than the than the you know a traditional Mexican culture. Because again, mine in West Texas was like this Tejano 
sure. Chicano kind of a, a sure. culture where enchiladas were something different to me than they were to, to Mario's Laura or tacos, you know, was right. an actual, you know, hard shell taco. And Tamara's like, hey, that's a burrito, dude. <laughs> and, you know, there's so many things that, uh, that we are, we, and we, till this day, you know, we, we can, go, we can, uh, you know, discuss uh, the names of what we, we would call something. And she's like, learn Spanish, Elias. <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, but I was, I, that's when I embraced uh, a lot of, of the, my culture and, and really said, there's so much beauty in this. And, uh, and uh, there's no reason why we can't continue to um, invest in and um, in embrace educated yes. um, Latinos. Absolutely. And uh, we have a place. And that was when I started discovering that we have a place. Right on. Talk to us about that moment that you graduated from college. What was that moment like for you? Sure. I, um, uh, by then, again, we're doing our, our, our own thing. So we're out of the house to graduate from, from college. Um, so uh, then the people that would even wonder, you know, well, maybe my family, we, they, I wanted to be there, mm-hmm. but we were doing our own celebration. We celebrated because it was only loud and either really news, but my friends and my church community, you know, were part of those celebrations. Uh-huh. And that was special. And I'll never forget, man, when uh, when I graduated, Tobias Guzman, again, the VP of, uh, uh, of uh, enrollment management, you know, he had came to my party and, you know, another uh, uh, another colleague of mine that was my boss, you know, came by. Um, and I mean, it was just, it was special. And by then I had already had a niche in leadership. You know, I mm-hmm. talked about being in the ministry. So I had, had a niche in, in, in leadership. And so I was comfortable developing, um, you know, these leaders within the church or, and having pastor friends and having just all of these spaces where, you know, I could befriend people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was my my bachelor's degree was that. And but the coolest part was them offering me a job. You got to understand for for us uh, and those of us that were coming from these identities and stuff. What we understand is work. What I understood there was uh, if I'm going to study this hard, I have to be able to make money mm-hmm. because, you know, to be honest, there was my faith was, was uh, the, the I was getting I was getting uh, ridiculed. Actually, I was getting um, kind of uh, guilt shame for 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 being the the of the male in, in my in my household and not having a, a full time job mm-hmm. for my wife working mm-hmm. um, while I was going to school and just doing a part time job mm-hmm. I was getting really um, that was held against me yeah. and um, uh, and it is those pressures oftentimes that I still see today in Latino you know students who are saying hey I can't leave my my, my family to do this work. Um, you know, I have to, who else is going to be able to, to help the family with income? Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the challenges. Or they get here and they want to work 30, 40 hour, uh, hours while being a student, right? Yeah. That's, we, that's, that's, they need someone there that, that can say, it's not, that's very difficult. You yeah, know? And Absolutely. it's not always feasible. So for some, after a four-year degree is done, and you said there was already pressures for you to be a full-time employee somewhere, right? Uh, but you you decided four-year degree should not be enough. You decided to pursue a master's. What was your decision behind that, and why did you decide to pursue the master's degree? Well, jumping right in from uh, from my undergraduate to being an admissions counselor, mm-hmm. that was it. W- it wouldn't have been the same had I done anything else. I mean, I 
was then living higher ed. I mean, my whole job, my me traveling. I started off recruiting in in the Greeley area. Mm-hmm. It moved to New Mexico. It moved, it moved to North Denver. It moved to uh, Arizona. Moved to California. And then by the my last year, I was recruiting in Hawaii. Uh, wow! And I was good at it. I was like, shit. Yeah. But you know, it wasn't even so much. I wasn't like we're getting commissioned for each win. But you know, it was the who which students I was bringing in, and 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 the fact that many of them were, were graduating in four years, so I got to see them start. They would have never come to UNC had I not just used a little charm and, you know, spazazz or whatever, uh-huh. got them there. And next thing you know, they're nurses, you know, from wow. Hawaii that are now, uh, but teachers, you know, yeah. because they took advantage of our Cumbres program at UNC. And it's so empowering, man, to me, to be an, an honor. So I was hooked, buddy. I was hooked when I said, I can get a master's in this. And at that time, they started bringing in, you know, um, faculty like um, Katrina uh, Rodriguez. And mm-hmm. I remember reading books by, you know, Laura Rendon. Uh, I think it was called uh, Sente Pensante Pensante Pedagogy. Sente Pensante, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember it rocking wow. my world, man. And so I was like, I was all about this. And, and I'm like, I can do this. And then it was getting paid for so that was the other thing that I understood is like, hey, I can't, I can't afford, you know, five hundred dollar credit hours. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, uh, I just stuck with it, and little by little, man, I got through it. And next thing you know, here I am planning a, a master's degree. So mind boggling to me, so mind boggling to my family, and everybody's like, what is going on, man? Yeah. Uh, and it was so special for me. So graduating again for the second time, really talk to us about getting that master's degree and sure. what that moment was like for you. You know, it created some. Um, it, cre- it created confidence, of course, but it opened up opportunities. So, you know, I had uh, I was I was a recipient of the uh, forty under forty biz- through BizWest for the work that oh, wow. I was doing with underrepresented students. Yeah. By then, I was like, I had I was I had the skill set. I was the knowledge to be almost unstoppable. It felt like right. I was like, I know more, and I can do more. So my influence started getting broader. Um, so after I got my master's degree, they shoulder tapped me, UNC shoulder tapped me, says, hey, we're, we're needing a, a hall director. And um, I don't know if I would have done it again in the same way because, man, I, would, I was going from a pretty mediocre salary uh, to an even less salary, and you needed to have a master's degree, but it was because they were providing a housing and a meal plan and all this stuff. Um, so it was new to my wife and I and Christian, and I'm like, wow, we're living on campus, but we're also living at the same place that we work. That was oh, that was wild to me. I was <laughs> like, when does this shut off? It was crazy. I was living in a fishbowl, and uh, the things that I valued so much about home was never really home, but yet it was, but it was always in a professional manner. Yeah. So... When I would share to people that, yeah, I was a hall director and, you know, oh, we tell her, and Laura, I mean, she lives education. She loves, she loves school and she's mm-hmm. just that person. Mm-hmm. So for her, man, she, she just loved living there. For Miko, he was safe all the time. It was beautiful. It felt like this is the first time, you know, not the first time, I guess, but I mean, here I'm living the life of a professional. And that is still, you know, sometimes I, I pinch myself and think, wow, this is it. Yeah. I'm doing it, you know. Yeah. It seems like we're always chasing something. We're always chasing something. And, and it's really not until we stop and pause where we're like, man, this is, life is good. I'm getting paid to, 
I've got they're paying for my salary, they're paying for my home, they're paying for my meal plans and all this enough. Mm-hmm. But um, it wasn't easy, man. It wasn't easy to take care of 375 students. And mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. I know that previously we had Danielle Pacheco and her being <laughs> yeah, she yeah. learned to what that housing life is like and being on call 24 seven. I I can't tell you the many stories, man, where I'm dragging my family out because of you know just so many instances of bomb threats and this. Oh my and goodness, that, or sprinklers or something. And it was it was crazy. And to be honest, I mean, uh, there's people that there's people in this world, and this is higher ed is a big again business and enterprise. And Absolutely. there's so many different departments, whether it be financial aid, whether it be housing, whether it be uh, you know advising, um, so many different departments to make it work, right? Absolutely. And in higher ed, we have we were recognizing that there's associations. So there's people that have been one of these things for years, and that's all they've known. I mean, they live and breathe housing. I remember yeah. them doing, there is hall directors that were all about, you know, they knew about RHA and, you know, and all this housing association stuff, and they would do all these games and do all this stuff. Uh, that was foreign to me, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm like, this is a profession, you know. I wanted to be professional. These, all these games and stuff I didn't understand and competitions they were just a little weird for me. So having fun while working was just a little different, but yet trying to keep everybody safe. It was this weird balance that I just, I uh, it took me, I, I mean, to go into housing, <laughs> dude, I just think you, you are, for those that are in housing, props to you, much love to you, may the force be with you. <laughs> I mean, uh, it is not for everybody, and I quickly discovered it wasn't for me. Yeah. Uh, and that's when I, um, I got picked up by the Colorado Department of Higher Education, which, again, was a huge honor because this, now is representing the state of Colorado in education Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. at the state level. So I hear I was I was like I only heard of the lieutenant governor, you know, Joe Garcia, but now mm-hmm. we're seeing him come to our meetings, and now uh, I'm getting paid better than I'd ever had in the past, and mm-hmm. to do something that I I, I was like it was coming pretty easy to me. <laughs> uh, so I want to give a quick shout out to Christine Ingram because she is. Um, she was uh, she was she's my supervisor and, and this and uh, the program director for Colorado Europe and um, she was just so influential in my development and uh, so I had four years uh, if not no five years mm-hmm. and one of the special things about my time there which again that was when I was an, a, uh, an affiliate here I was placed here at CSU yeah. to serve our students through this Colorado Europe program um, after my fifth year, and this is still on my in my office today, one of the favorite gifts that I've ever gotten was uh, they award you a Colorado flag that they'll fly up on the Capitol for one day um, in honor of your five-year anniversary when you're wow. working with this state. So yeah. I got that, and I did do the traditional fold, the flag fold, and I have it on my desk now. And uh, it was it was special. Man. Amazing. It was special. So, Elias, r- quick recap. You were working, a completed undergrad, you completed a master's, but then you decided you wanted to go into a doctoral program. What was your decision behind that, and what is that like now? Yeah, I've always wanted to be one. I, I, I've always had this um, desire to excel, even though I, I recognize my strengths and my weaknesses. And But uh, um, if there was something better up there, uh, I, I, I was at least curious enough to to, to, to want it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I discovered higher ed leadership, and I'd seen that oh, there's so many different acronyms right now: HESOL, HEL, SAHI, and uh, I discovered that we have a program here. Um, 
was like, why not, man? I mean, if I want to be the best, and I, I didn't lie, you know, I love the idea of having Dr. Quinones next to my title. I was already, <laughs> Sounds, getting, I was already fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I was already getting really comfortable with this, uh, people seeing me as a professional. And I, I said, well, if there's another level, uh, why, why can't I? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I, t- I shared that, you know, in 2017, my, father, my parents passed away. Mm-hmm. So um, it wasn't until 2018 that I got admitted into this program that uh, you know over 100 applicants and 15 were admitted and it was our yeah. program here at CSU only two from Colorado and only one that was working here at CSU man and that was me mm-hmm. uh, so uh, I was I was in awe of that and at that time I was doing some work with um, uh, again the supporting DACA students here um, and um, I was the advisor to our dream, our Dreamers United here mm-hmm. at the time. And mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. brought to, to campus, by that time I had brought to campus ASU's Dream Zone training. Mm-hmm. So I brought a facilitator from them to, I remember uh, meeting with uh, Marion Tiveros and asking, uh, hey, could, well, could we bring Dream Zone to, to which is a, a training program that helps serve undocumented students? And she says, well, if you're going to fund it and... Uh, uh, why not? Let's let's do this thing. So yeah. I got the green light from the. It didn't get much higher than than her in my opinion, and I had the approval from my RN and Carl Europe, and there we were. So I had the first meeting. I brought a facilitator, twenty five people from CSU, and the idea was to train the trainers right, and so that we could then develop a, a training program, uh, call it Dream Zone, and 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 then adapt some things that would work for us here at CSU. And at that time, it, we we didn't have. As many, you know, uh, in that situation because there was no assistance for students in that space. So students were having to find private donors to pay out-of-state tuition. Right. So that was, so, you know, our numbers, but law had just passed where they were, you know, and it was transitioning to in-state. And then we started being able to do more and more. Mm-hmm. I says, let's stay ahead of this uh, at that time. Man, February 11th, I want to say, is when we brought them to, to campus in uh, uh, 2015. Wow. And um, uh, so I'd been here a year, and and we got the green light to do it, man. And and next thing you know, dude, this is something I hadn't shared before. Uh, next thing you know, uh, I had a, a team of powerful people that uh, that came together to be a part of this core, mm-hmm. um, this core team. Mm-hmm. And we were starting to develop this training and office of admissions. Uh, registrars, financial aid, all of them said. So CSU picked it up and said, we're training all of our staff in this space. And so we trained over 300 um, faculty, students, and staff. Amazing. uh, This four-hour Dream Zone training um, from this powerful team at the time. Yeah. And through that, we then developed, you know, the the, uh, campus contacts that were specializing in in working with them. That's kind of where, you know, C4E came, and then they've dispersed. It looks a little different. But I was very honored to be a part of those early efforts. Right on. Um, what is something you would like to share with TRIO students thinking about pursuing their undergrad, grad, or doctoral degree? Oh, man. TRIO students. Oh, geez. Well, if you already understand what it is to be a TRIO student, you already have an advantage. And I, I just couldn't affirm enough how... Um, how much of an advantage it is. I don't think you realize it because it just feels like another program. It feels like everybody's doing 
um, you know, a form of, a, of program and offering a program, but TRIO is unlike any other program, and, and it can have just a life-changing impact and a, and a, a, a huge um, directional change in your life for the positive. So I'd say stick with it, advocate for it, continue to, to fight for it, and, uh, and, and more often than not, you, you can't go wrong. Awesome. Talk to us about your research in your doctoral program. How does that research relate to TRIO programs? That's a great question. And um, so I just completed my coursework. It took five years to make that bad boy happen. But, wow. Um, uh, and, and while I, I'm excited to talk about the research, I, I, I want to share this other thing there. Because it's easy to say, oh, you got, you got into a master's program, but you still had to do the work to get through the master's. So that's 30 credits. Well, this PhD program, I mean, not only did you get in and that's oh cool and all, but you had to take two, um, we're designed to take, um, to be a working professional, you take two credits every semester, then one in the summer and then two, you know, during those semesters. For four years, you're doing coursework like that. Wow. And this is at the highest level of the game. Mm-hmm. So we're talking six, 700 level, you know, coursework. Wow. And we're talking some pretty, I mean, it's just all of Intense. that. It's not given to you. Yeah. And uh, time, and I can't tell you the many times, you know, that I felt that I, I just can't do it. It's just too much. Mm-hmm. Because, again, you're in a profession, a profession that we're advocating and, and in the fight kind of, sort of say, every day. And then we're at home and then we're dealing with finance. We're dealing with all the other stuff. We're dealing with dysfunctional families. We're dealing with life in general. Right. And and while trying to complete a PhD, so I just don't want to take lightly this idea of getting admitted is one thing, mm-hmm. um, but doing the work and, and, and passing each course, and, and, and I want to be transparent, man. That last credit, which I was just an empty shell of a person during that last year, wow. and I failed it. I felt I couldn't complete. I couldn't do the work that was, that was needed, and it took a year before I could get back to that one course just to do it. Mm-hmm. And at that point, its its whole purpose is to develop an independence to where you're doing your own research, you're doing your own studies, and you're doing your own. Uh, well, we oftentimes will prioritize work. We oftentimes will prioritize family because we'll put ourselves last because we can come in at the end to, to do it. Well, I couldn't fake it, this. You can't fake no, this. No, you can't. And that's where I'm at now, where, where I've got to work to get my prelims. i got to work to get question ones. you got to write, and you got to do scholarly writing. So and you got to find my biggest challenge until this day is finding a topic that that um, that you want to put a magnifying glass to and mm-hmm. study in it in depth, you know. So I was all over the place. I, wanted, I was interested in HSI. I was interested in TRIO. I was interested... And so access and support for underrepresented students is what I live and breathe and will we will end my days with, you know, access and support for underrepresented students. Mm-hmm. But choosing that as just your, your PhD, that's that's just too broad. Yeah. Well, I adamantly cared about, you know, ethnically di- uh, diverse uh, demographics, adamantly mm-hmm. cared about Native Americans, Black African Americans, of course, Latinos, Latina, Latinx, and... Um, I wanted to do something in each of these, yeah. and I just loved. I loved, and till this day, I get I get mind blown by by new areas of focus. But then I um, I read a report recently, the commission report that really aligned with everything. And and oftentimes in a dissertation and a research, it's based off of your life less your life experience, right? Your life journey, 
And for me, it made all the sense in the world when I read a report about um, equity through high-impact practices. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, what is the one thing that, that's been transformational throughout my whole experience in higher ed? And it started with the upward bound. Upward mm-hmm. bound is, in my opinion, the epitome of an equitable high-impact practice yeah. where it recognizes identities. Mm-hmm. And while it is not the sole purpose of an admission space, it recognizes that and builds from that and, yeah. and sees that as part of your stories and develops curriculum from that. I says, lights, man, right just, just clicked. Wow. And when I thought about, you know, community for excellence, key communities, f- programs that haven't figured out, you know, and that are just doing well and, you know, uh, becoming outliers in a lot of ways and, and, and things, it is that kind of equity in a high-impact practice that, that they discover they... It's a holistic view of a, of a student story. Yeah. Right? So that's that's where I said I'm running wow. with this. And that's where my research is, is, fall, is, is falling on is um, equity within higher impact practices. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to go to an assessment institute recently, and I bought as many books as I could find in regards to um, this area. Mm-hmm. Man, I, it's just affirming um, what these programs that are built in this structure and this dynamic can do. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to practice it in in uh, my spaces uh, now, where, uh, which I would love to share at some point. Of course, after uh, I, I want to cover as much as we can in, in this space, but I, uh, I'm really excited about some recent efforts in regards to a program I call the Samia Project. All right. That's well, awesome. we can talk about that at whatever point you want. <laughs> uh, so, Elias, you've persisted through a variety of challenges. What is some advice you would share with TRIO students in terms of those challenges that you faced? What would you What would you say to them about facing challenges and overcoming obstacles? I would say that um, those challenges are not don't always go away, and that the the fight isn't isn't exactly going to be roses all the time, and, yeah. and um, especially when it's things that you care about and advocate for. When you're choosing to go in this space, I would say be prepared to. Uh, be prepared for uh, uh, a pretty tough battleground. I mean, um, there's a lot of rewards, and obviously the rewards will outweigh um, the battles, but when you care about something so much, um, and when you already have, you either have lived experiences, and you see who's left outside of the gate, mm-hmm. You see who's not getting in. You see who's not in the room. You see um, who's not in these spaces. It's heart-wrenching. Yeah. Heart-wrenching. Man. Oh, yeah. And when you have the knowledge and the education to, to see, well, then why? Why is it that some can and others haven't? You recognize that that um, there's some uh, there's some um, inequities that, that uh, you want to advocate for. And when you become part of these stories and part of these lives and and stuff it, it it's it's heart-wrenching work absolutely um so you got to learn to balance that with self-care you got to learn to balance that with being surrounded by other people that are doing inspiring work so that when one is not uh you know uh at the highest level of ready to take on the world because you'll be there and then there's other days where you're going to be this empty shell as i've shared in you mm-hmm. know the time where that's unfortunately happened um, so, but it's worth it. I mean, it is so worth it. And um, 
and so I would encourage anyone that is uh, that that is uh, you know thinking about higher education or thinking about you know going to college um, absolutely it's worth it man but have a purpose have a plan and you know I can't tell anyone what that purpose or plan is but for me it was impacting lives and making a difference in our community it really was to try to do my best at that that's what's been my driving force and I needed to stay grounded in that I've till this day I need to st- I need to remind myself why why I'm doing this, you know. Absolutely. And I talked about my son coming to college and how life's been different for him, but man, uh, the stories of, of of the students that that we've worked with and uh, the impact mm-hmm. that and the opportunities that education has provided it's a game changer and and it changes generational patterns for the better. It can oftentimes do that. Now I'm not saying that entrepreneur and and, and you know there's other things that aren't that colleges for everyone you know that's a that's a whole different argument but i can say that education in the most part can create opportunities and allow you to then advocate for others and and to be game changer to change systems to change broken systems and Mm -hmm. um that can impact our community uh in the same vein uh what is some advice would you that you would like to share with trio professionals It's easy. It's easy in the space to, and by no means do I have all the answers. I'm just sharing, but from my lived experiences, again, my, my my personal things. But it's easy for us to look across and compare everything that we don't have. Compare to see our jobs as just a job, and to look over and say, well, engineering, you know, they're making this, and the directors of this, and theirs, and then business, they're making this, and private industries, and and they are. They are making that, and and I'm nothing against that, nothing against personal choice if if that's what you choose. But I'll tell you, man, at the end of the day, you know, the dash between the the stone, you know, you know, of the birth and and the end of life, um, man, what we're doing is stinking special. Absolutely, it's immeasurable, Absolutely. it's invaluable, and I don't want that to be a justification for us to. Uh, not advocate for higher pay when we're deserved or not advocate for, you know, um, you know, uh, being stretched thin because unfortunately that's the, that's the situations that we're off in our end. You know, there's never enough people, there's, uh, there's never enough resources, never enough money and funding. But man, I would just encourage you, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the years of service of the years and years of, and, and, uh, uh, the the lack of the pats on the back that you've um, that you've received and the acknowledgement that you've received for your hard work that no one else will receive and oftentimes our students may not they appreciate it and they they know the difference but they might not know to say thank you they might not recognize it even till now until years later but know that you are making an impact and and that impact is immeasurable and and uh, so the that is is special know that whatever you decide. Um, this work is unlike any other, and it is primarily because of the places and the lives that we have been entrusted with um, that others couldn't get to. So, and you're there, um, you're doing the work, and um, you're changing lives. You're changing lives in a very special way, and uh, in return, it's changing our life. Um, Wonderful message, Elias. Uh, what is next for you five to ten years from now? 
well, I got to get this degree. I got to get this PhD. I Absolutely. Want it. It's got to be yes. Dr. Quinones at some point. Uh, and I got to prioritize that. So I got to figure out how to do whatever I need to take to prioritize this next step because at this point it's all on me. But, uh, but, but during that, and I got to share, you know, the opportunities that I've had here in the College of Ag and, and uh, the work that's going on. So I'm the, I'm the advisor to um, Manners, which is Minorities in Agriculture Related Science, Natural Science and uh, Natural Resources and Related Science. And um, I'll tell you, I just came out of a, you know, a meeting where students that are in these spaces are now discovering how they can be leaders in this world and really acknowledge and share a story. So many of so many of them are carrying, you know, their family's legacies, some of the their their abuelos' uh, legacy, and they're embracing, they're recognizing and seeing, you know, and it's going to be a tough a tough challenge, but. Um, you know, I've just been fortunate to be a part of this and develop leaders. We're going to a conference in, in April, and we're going to, uh, you know, develop a chapter that's going to be um, powerful here at, at CSU and here in our college. And um, that is so encouraging. And we already see the impact that it's making. Students, just before here, I came up, a student came with me and said, Elias, um, can, we, can we have a student organization called Latinos in Ag? And I said, absolutely. Yeah, let's, uh, you know, and, and they had ideas about what they wanted it to look like. And I mm-hmm. said, let's get it registered and become a club in Oregon. So there's wonderful works that I have the opportunity to work with there. And I get to, I get to, to stand side by side by other amazing leaders that are working in, the, in these um, spaces of diversity and advocacy of inclusion and so forth. Okay. But I wanted to share uh, one of the most recent accolades, and it was in regards to um, CSU <clears throat> systems. Um, and being awarded a, a, a grant called the, the Semia Project, which I you yes. know, I named and, and embraced, and um, I developed a team. I, I brought in uh, uh, you know my former supervisor Christine Ingram, who oversaw all of and oversees all of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I also brought in uh, my my good friend Ty Smith, who is the Native American Cultural Center director here, and um, and he he got us access, access to use his networking and, 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 and brought in two wonderful Native American programs in the Denver area, Denver Jeffco, uh, Native American education programs. So between Colorado Gear Up and these two Native, Native American education programs, because of Christine Ingram and because of Ty Smith, you know, we were awarded this grant that's allowing us to serve students for five years and take them through our new campus in Spur, which if you haven't visited, if you're ever in the Denver area, please visit um, our Spur campuses. There are three um, buildings, Hydro, Terra, and Vida, and wow. just phenomenal, phenomenal campuses. So um, now we have the resources to bring um, 17 different groups of students from Denver, Colorado, you know, just throughout our urban and rural spaces to get them to and through our Spur campus to be able to provide a workshop that is engaging uh, to them and to help them remind them of our impact and heritage and, and uh, of our story of, uh, you know, and connection to agriculture, but also tell them that just as much as they're a part of the historically, they have to be a part of it in the future. We have to Absolutely. be a part of it today and tomorrow. These industries, we need each of these uh, these students to be advocates and to be in these spaces and to be the scientists, to be the soil and crop, um, you know, specialists, to understand cattle and, and, and equine sciences, 
to understand, you know, um, water resources, all of our, and to advocate. Um, so I'm fortunate enough to have been awarded that. I'm fortunate enough to be working with uh, with great leaders that see it, to work with department heads that are invested in this, um, and um, and to be a college that's allowed me the opportunity to be a part of this. Um, these students are mostly first gen, oftentimes of God, definitely uh, many are limited income, but these are students within the community. Mm-hmm. They're now gonna get what I would consider a first class experience to um, to show how valuable they are. Awesome. I called it the SAMIA project because I, I, I'm adamant that a SAMIA will fulfill its purpose when the environment has all of the proper nutrients and the proper, uh, when a SAMIA is taken care of and nurtured, and oftentimes those things that we value are, um, uh, they they fulfill their purpose. You they know? do, for and sure. when the environment creates um, is not all that. You know, we still have the seeds strong enough that continue to, to to um, you know produce and to 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 flourish, but yet not in the best uh, outcome. So the Semia project is basically saying we recognize environments and uh, that our environments are part of our story, yeah. and then the, the the time that we have to to be a part of your environment, we're going to make the absolute best that we can uh, and show the world why you 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 matter. So in the Every student, we're going to serve a thousand students every year wow. for five years. Wow. 250 of those students are from Native American communities. Wow. Every student will have a shirt that says, Yo soy la semilla in the back. We designed a very special logo in the front. In the back it says, Yo soy la semilla because the one message that we want to tell the world is, um, is that they are the seed and that the environment around them can make them better or can bring challenges. Yeah. I want them to recognize how they can they can contribute to to helping fulfill the purpose of these seeds, and uh, I couldn't be more excited and more honored to. We're getting great traction. We got the um, Colorado uh, Department of Agriculture reaching out to us and the, and the outreach, saying they want to be, they 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 want to know what's going on with the managers and what's happening <laughs> right. and what's happening with this. I mean, they've heard of uh, this, and we got an outreach specialist from our extension agents up in the Denver area. And we have uh, other agents throughout Colorado that are they're wanting to learn and say, how can we continue to reach? We have a wonderful program called Envirathon that's going to be um, intentional about reaching two of um, uh, community to developing two teams from our youth um, mm-hmm. nation, and uh, um, that's going to be special. So being able to be just known um, for uh, and and share resources and being around people that recognize. Um, the beauty into this is, is pretty awesome. That's amazing. So that's amazing. Uh, yes. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. Uh, what What is one word you would use to describe yourself? I know earlier in the podcast we said how would family describe you. Now looking and reflecting on all the work that you've done, your your legacy that you're working on, what's the one word you would use to describe yourself? Besides out of shape. No. I mean, no. no not that not at all. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not out of shape, folks. I'm really 6'2 and uh, 175. Um, uh, okay. Uh, hope. Um, you know, hope. I was at a conference like one year in Arizona. And um, at that conference, they were researching. They did a research. Gallup did a research on teachers and saying what makes a t- teachers exceptional. And um, out of that research, everything was just, you know, pretty. Everything was pretty much on the bell curve in regards to, 
you know, teachers that created more, you know, homework, teachers that were higher advanced, all this and that. Right. Um, more educated and all that. And those were all pretty much standard. There was one thing that really set apart some teachers, but I'm talking like four or five. It was an identifier that um, really made um, people an outlier. And I was, um, and as they were sharing with that, uh, they said that um, teachers that instilled hope in their students were those teachers that were seen as the best. They were oh, the wow. ones that were seen as exceptional that I were doing everyone by. That's amazing. By, again, this crazy outlier uh, on the scale. So I would love, to, and uh, Trio, this is what they're known for, and, and, and great people that influence others are known for this. They build up others. They instill hope. They see people for not where they're at, but where they're going. They overlook, yeah. you know, our flaws and our attitudes, and they, they 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 allow a little grace, you know, and and they say, you know, okay, we will continue to grow and learn, but they instill hope, and and I know that that, and there's a, a big theory on hope, and it goes along with sense of belonging, it goes along with so many other things, but hope, man, is a powerful, powerful thing, and guess what, uh, Juan, it, it costs us nothing. It costs yeah. us nothing to instill yeah. that in people. Cost us nothing to look for the the best in people. Um, so, if there was one word that I I would want to you know exude, there's one word that I'd want to you know yell from the rooftop is let's instill hope in in, in, in others. And, and hope is more than just a word. It's more than it's how it's how people feel. Absolutely. It's how you make people feel, and, and they, they they remember that. So it's a powerful thing, and and. Uh, one that I continue to do every day. I awesome. try. Uh, thank you, Elias, for your time this evening. Uh, this was such a great conversation. We definitely need to have a part two. Uh, I feel like there's more to your story and there's more you need to say. So we should definitely do this again. Well, Mr. Elias, I could not be more grateful for the opportunity. And again, only the, it only took me three years to be on your, your podcast. <laughs> um, I'm honored. And to your listeners, uh, you know, this says more about you than it does about me. Um, for you to recognize the beauty of TRIO and the impact that it's made in so many lives. I mean, this is where it counts. Um, the work that you're doing is uh, immeasurable, invaluable, and, um, and, and will continue to make a difference in, in so many lives. So I would love to close with this, affirming a, a message that uh, TRIO works. Uh, again, my name is Elias Quinones. I'm the manager of Student Life and Diversity here at Colorado State University, soon to be Dr. Quinones, and an advocate for me, an advocate for you. Uh, and another quick reminder that Trio works. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a Trio program? Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk Trio. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk Trio. We want to get your story to the public. That was our guest, Elias Quinones, a Trio alum of the Upper Bound Program at Colorado State University. Elias, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your TRIO story. Remember, if you would like to be on the Let's Talk TRIO podcast or know a staff, advocate, or participant or alumni, send us an email at letstalktrio at gmail.com. 
That email again is L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. A huge thanks to our sponsors, Angelica Vialpando, Dr. Jamie Motley, Dr. Ryan Barone, Angelica Valdez, Rosario Riley, TrioJobList.com, Nosotros Education Center, Jaded Electronics, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for your continued support of this podcast. I'd like to take a moment to thank our honorary members of the Let's Talk Trio podcast, Roderick Chambers, Tony Ho, Scott Kendall, and Susan Cramp. The Let's Talk Trio podcast team is John Russell, audio engineer, music producer and composer, and post-production editor. Amelia Castañeda, script supervisor, marketing manager, social media manager, and producer. Juan Rivas, executive producer and host. This episode was recorded Thursday, February 9th, 2023. Remember, the right to vote is your most crucial right. Please exercise it every chance you get. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode.